0: Hello. How are you? There you are. Good. How are you? I'm very well. Nice to meet you finally. Yeah,
1: good to meet you too.
0: I think my first question actually is a bit of a funny one because I noticed that in 2005 you were interviewed on CNN and the journalist who interviewed you asked whether you would come back in 10 years and follow up with her on how you've (laughs) changed the world. And so I was curious whether you actually did have that follow-up interview. Am I scooping CNN?
1: Oh, no. Uh, you are absolutely scooping CNN. Yeah, they better get on it. Uh, <laughs> I did not remember that at all. I should follow up and see.
0: I think it was Kira Phillips. I don't know if she's still there. But um, okay. yeah, you could you could or, or allow me to scoop CNN. And I'm happy to do that. Yeah, let's do it. I'm Anna Soper, and I'm a writer, artist, and librarian from Kingston, Ontario, Canada. Welcome to Season 2 of Teen People, the podcast where I interview people who were in Teen People magazine. The podcast was inspired by my teenage collection of Teen Peoples, which I rediscovered a few years ago. Teen People magazine featured their readers throughout every issue and published their full names, ages, and locations, which makes them really Googleable today. As I flipped through these old magazines, I realized these kids were my age or older. Where are they now, I wondered. This season begins with a conversation with Alex B. Hill. Alex was 17 when teen people honored him for his charitable work in 2005. By that time, he'd raised $70,000 for medical supplies in Uganda, including an ambulance serving 140,000 people across 62 communities. Alex has a BA in international relations and a master's degree in medical anthropology. He is currently working on a PhD at Wayne State University, where he also works as a geographic information systems director and adjunct professor in the department of urban studies and planning and the department of public health. Alex spoke with me in the spring of 2021 and began by telling me about the charity that landed him on Teen People magazine's list of teens who will change the world.
1: I still have that that story memorized um, <laughs> since there were so many interviews. But as a 13 year old in my um, hometown, I met a priest from Uganda who was kind of on a mission trip, raising funds, um, getting people to support this healthcare initiative. At the time, I said, "You know, how how could I help? What could I do?" And they said, "Well, we're really going to need an ambulance." Uh, and so I thought, "Well, I guess sure." I can get an ambulance. How hard is that? <laughs> um but you know obviously you don't you don't ship an ambulance you you raise the funds and get it <laughs> in country.
0: And you founded something called Scout Banana. What's what's the acronym there?
1: Uh yes, yeah, so that's a a great um long acronym that I think will follow me to my grave. Uh <laughs> this was for a scouting project so that's so why it has the word scout um and then we chose banana because there were uh i think 14 different kinds of banana plantain uh in uganda so it stands for serving citizens of uganda today because africa needs a new ambulance i mean i guess the the best way to describe it as i was uh, a very naive young teenager (laughs) who had never really traveled internationally, except to, uh, you know, Ontario, Canada, um, Point Pelee, but that's the easy part of of living in kind of the metro uh, Detroit area. Um, Canada is south.
0: <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> um, yeah, so I was able to travel to Uganda in the summer of um, in between uh, grade school and high school. And I mean, needless to say, it was eye opening. Um, I'd never really experienced anything like that. Um, And it wasn't, I guess, you know, your typical international travel stayed on on church properties and, you know, saw uh, extreme poverty and um, uh, you know, a lot of your stereotypes of what Africa, I don't even know if I I knew stereotypes of Africa at that point. Um, I just knew there was a lot of poverty and not a lot of development. So I think from that experience, it was really impactful and I wanted to continue to do the work. Um, and you know, we traveled around to different healthcare facilities and um, I think the one that really stood out to me was um, one night in our pickup truck, we came across a bicycle accident where you know there's no street lights and two cyclists collided head on in the dark. And one man was bleeding profusely from the head. Uh, we went to the government hospital that was nearby luckily because we had a pickup truck with an open bed uh, and the government hospital had nothing it was you know i could see through the windows i didn't go inside but i could see through the windows it was just empty rooms Um, and they actually turned him away and said we don't even have bandages go somewhere else you know after that we took him in the pickup truck to the local doctor to his house in the middle of the night and knocked on the door um, and the local doctor had Bandages and supplies, and treated him basically on his front porch. All of that was really impactful. And uh, so then I focused on, well, my major was international relations, but I also focused on African studies in undergrad um, with a specialization in international development because I thought that's what I was going to do. You know, starting out, I said I was a na- naive teenager, and um, that couldn't be more true because as I went through college, I realized all of the you know, the stereotypes of Africa and the underdevelopment that occurred, and, you know, these kind of broad global structural issues that cause healthcare systems in other countries to be non existent or, um, yeah. So I, by the end of college, I was not, <laughs> I didn't see it as my place to do international development work, even though by the time I graduated, Scott Banana had become a 501c3 nonprofit and we had college chapters across the country and some in Canada, and, you know, they were all doing different fundraisers and partnered with small-scale health projects in different countries in Africa. I mean, I guess through all of it, the the main focus was that young people in the U.S. really needed to have that education and information mm-hmm. on what was happening um, and to hear it directly from the people who were experiencing it. Um, and so I yeah. guess that's the the thread that I've really kind of carry through with the rest of my work. Um, I don't necessarily need to be, you know, quote unquote, saving Africa, as I think a lot of people would want to write in a headline. <laughs> but um, but really that recentering what's important and who you hear it from.
0: It's interesting because when you were a teenager, it seems like you were thinking very globally in how to change the world. And now your work is so local and so engaged with Detroit can you bridge the gap and tell me a little bit about what you're doing these days?
1: Yeah, well, I think carrying through that, um, that focus on recentering where you hear things. (laughs) Uh, There's plenty of stereotypes about Detroit as well. And, you know, who best to hear it from than Detroiters, although that's not usually the case. Because in the same sense, you know, occasionally people refer to Detroit as a global south, um, or a, a city that's, seeing as much underdevelopment as some countries around the world and i guess that's that's really what was important to me was that i was going to be in michigan and be in a place that uh, i could still have an impact and in my case i think a lot of what i learned in in international development is very applicable in detroit so uh, you know uh, my first job in Detroit was as a community health worker, where I was just driving to people's homes every day, in and out. Uh, and, and that just, that was huge for me and really centered kind of my transition from thinking <laughs> thinking about international relations and international development to, um, you know, there's a lot of these kind of those same structural issues that exist due to things like globalization. They exist here in the U.S. as well detroit's case it's that globalization took all of the all the jobs and auto companies away from the city and away from the state Uh, and now people you know had no no employment they didn't have these kind of social structures that the auto companies created um the philanthropies from these automakers as well so and i think that community piece is also something that i've really tried to hold on to in Detroit, and so a lot of my work is focused on supporting those community organizations to to tell their own story, to map their own community, uh, to find their own data, or collect it.
0: I watched a panel discussion you were involved in a few years ago, and you mentioned that at one point you were working with a teenage boy on calorie counting, and you said how he took the bus to school every day, and one day his friend was stabbed on the bus. And you described this sense of futility that you were supposed to check in with him twice a week about his calorie intake uh, when there were clearly larger social determinants of health at play.
1: Right. Absolutely. That was the that was when I was a community health worker. And I think that's when I really hit the, the kind of wall of how far research can go, because <laughs> um, it was a it was a large NIH funded research project. The principal investigator was really interested in having the data so they can calculate the outcomes at the end and publish a paper and then get funded again to do something else and you know just that cycle was well just thinking about that was grading and even before that you know i had no additional resources to offer the folks i was working with because i i had a limited script in what i could cover um
0: Mm -hmm. you're not a social worker
1: and yeah i'm not a social worker and Yeah, you're really not going to be interested in counting your calories when you never want to ride a bus again, uh, but you can't walk uh, because of your own mobility and and uh, chronic conditions. So there's a lot of gaps um, in research being able to address some significant problems.
0: Yeah, one of your colleagues on that panel said that people in your field think in stories.
1: Yeah, that's true. Um, I well. I guess it depends what field.
0: <laughs> she was a nutritionist. Yeah, <laughs> this yeah. was the uh, food food symposium, I think, at the University of Michigan. Am I getting that right?
1: Oh, yeah. I think they do a uh, they have a food literacy lecture series. Yeah. I'm trained as an anthropologist, um, even though after I got my master's in anthropology, <laughs> I was hired as an epidemiologist, which I think is the direct opposite. Contradiction. So I definitely think in stories <laughs> um, and I'm just able to pull the data and run the stats analysis at the same time. So it is definitely, uh, you know, no matter what issue or data set you're looking at, if you don't have context and a human context for that, it's not going to get you very far.
0: Um, and how has the pandemic affected and influenced all of what we've just been talking about?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, some of it, I don't know that we know the full impact yet uh, since it's still ongoing, but Mm -hmm. um, so the health department's gotten more funding. The city also launched in parallel a community health core that's doing a lot of phone calls and door knocking across the city. Right now, we're doing some interviews with folks in the food system on how they've addressed food insecurity during the pandemic, which has also been, they saw need skyrocket. So thinking about, you know, how people maintain some of the, the policy waivers uh, that have helped open the door uh, to address some more of those structural problems without all the kind of governmental requirements right now it's the, the social determinants are really what we see driving a lot of the inequity in the response we have teams that are doing mobile testing we have four vans that go out and you know we try to pull that data so that we can better align where the greatest need is with where we can provide resources um, and so now, now those mobile teams—they do testing, but now they are also—they're shifting and they're doing more vaccine distribution because folks in the city and the state have recognized that we we do a really good job <laughs> um, finding those communities of need uh, that are less likely to be served by things like mass vaccination sites or drive-through locations.
0: Uh, it seems like your work is pretty interdisciplinary. You you're focused on food access, racial justice, health equity, health information. Um, what makes your work so interdisciplinary?
1: <laughs> um, that's a great question. I I think it's partly because I don't subscribe to a discipline. <laughs> I guess I've had the privilege to just follow whatever interest I had um, and got really lucky that others were interested in it too, or at least willing to to give me a job or to fund me to do a project or something. I also think the just the, the range of skills... Uh, that I bring to any discipline or project um, is is so broad that it's really helpful and provides a, you know, I can fit in all different kind of niches.
0: Was it difficult um, for you to narrow down your PhD thesis? Oh, oh yes, absolutely. <laughs> what is your PhD thesis? <laughs>
1: Um, well, I guess it's still in process, but, but broadly it's, it's focused on, uh, kind of the politics of neighborhoods in Detroit. Uh, so there's, there aren't really clearly defined neighborhoods in the city. Um, depends who you talk to city government will draw lines and define them all. Um, but community members will say the major intersections that they come from or the church that they attend, or, you know, in some cases there is a kind of a long-term block, club you can trace back into history kind of where some of these things formed Um, at one point the federal government funded community development groups uh, whenever federal money was coming in to a neighborhood and and that kind of brought the community together and organized them Um, and in other cases communities just did it themselves because no one was going to do it for them so uh, i often talk about detroit being a, a city of 700,000 stories. Um, that's roughly the population. (laughs) And it really is. You can talk to anyone in the city and get a different story. Um, hear different themes that come through. Uh, and I think this one in particular is really important, especially as the city attempts to, um, you know, we have the largest residential demolition program in the nation. Uh, we were the largest municipal bankruptcy (laughs) in the country and all of those, you know, They're just broad crises that have happened um, or large programs that have happened citywide. But uh, there's all of these stories that go along with those uh, Mm. that if we don't capture them now, we're going to lose. them.
0: So Detroit is kind of at a crossroads then. And and you're hoping to really create a snapshot to to maybe guide the way forward.
1: Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, a specific snapshot to um, community voices. Um, and the way uh, the way the communities have come together um, to to form their own futures in a sense
0: sounds like there's an oral history component to this work.
1: yeah, it's definitely uh, part oral history um, and then also I mean part ethnography for how folks are how folks are engaging right now in that process.
0: I wonder if you're going to become a sort of folklorist for Detroit. <laughs>
1: Possibly. You never know. Um, I do. Uh, I think right now my blog of maps is cited more often than I am.
0: <laughs> huh. I noticed in the, the panel discussion that you said you really enjoyed maps. What is it about maps that's so fascinating for you?
1: Yeah, I uh, I guess I'm not entirely sure. I, I, I can blame being a Boy Scout for a really long time um, as to why I'm really Fixated on maps, but I think they're also just really well. And I guess I found them really useful. Uh, you know, when you're lost in the woods, <laughs> uh, but I find them really helpful in in understanding kind of the way different phenomena play out in a spatial way. Um, uh, and in Detroit, there's a lot a lot of interesting data to find, uh, a lot of interesting stories to tell that have a really specific spatial pattern to them. A big part of that, too, is how how people have defined their own spaces. Um, And that's something you can also track spatially and over time.
0: (laughs) How are people defining their own spaces in Detroit today?
1: Well, it really depends. Um, Some of them seek out big funding. Uh, Others um, put up these community signs uh, like the block club puts up a sign at the ends of the streets um, that encompass the area. Sometimes it's that funding signage and um, they take ownership over a lot of space that has been uh, made vacant or urban gardening is also, I think Detroit is kind of the the center of this urban agriculture movement. That's really, it's spread globally at this point um, and inspired urban agriculture movements in countless cities. But um, that's also a really significant way that folks have kind of claimed space um, in their community and, you know put their mark and said, this is our space. Um, Mm -hmm. We're gonna maintain it, beautify it before anyone else can (laughs) come in and and claim it for themselves.
0: Where do you see your career going from here?
1: Um, That's a really great question. (laughs) Because it really could go in any direction. I think that's something that my my naive teenage self also didn't really realize is um, You can make plans, but they don't necessarily (laughs) all pan out. Being flexible and open to opportunity has really been a benefit. I don't think data and mapping are gonna go away anytime soon. So I very much have that skill set to to take me in many different directions, Um, but I'm also hopeful to be able to, to tell more stories of Detroit.
0: So Teen People Magazine described you as a teen who would change the world. How are you going to change the world? (laughs)
1: <laughs> uh, I guess I, I hope in some small part, I already have. My primary hope is really to to be a support system uh, for others that, that want to make a difference in their own communities at this point. And, you know, I hope my my privilege and my skills are, are able to do that. Historical inequalities are not going to change overnight, um, and they're not going to be changed by a single person. So,, uh, the more people that we can help to make those changes, um, the likely better off we're going to be.
0: Do you think the premise of teen people's feature twenty teens who will change the world, which they did for a few years, do you think that puts too much pressure on one individual person?
1: Um, I do think so. yeah. I mean, i I definitely had my own kind of personal reckoning with you know changing the world and Uh, starting a nonprofit and then choosing to shut it down, because it didn't really make sense. I didn't think uh, it was a position I should be in, or that it was doing the most good. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I think that's really difficult, um, especially for, you know, people that regularly get propped up as most likely to succeed or, you know, (laughs) you're one of something that's going to alter and shape our world. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, I don't think you can put it all on teen people. I think there is actually a research study that looked at people who were named most likely to succeed in high school and (laughs) how they fared or if that was too much pressure for them.
0: (laughs) It's funny that you say that because I spoke with uh, someone recently. Um, She was also a teen who would change the world. And she said that that actually put so much weight on her shoulders. And she spent a good part of her 20s kind of drifting. She wasn't sure what she wanted to do with her life. And it's sort of now in her 30s that she's coming into her stride. I guess that's true of, of many people, whether they're featured in Teen People or not, as, as young high achievers. But she said that th- this is the danger of being a prodigy. You feel like you have to constantly meet up to or match up to this standard of achievement that you reached before. If I did it before, why can't I do it again and again and again? Um, and so she felt like being a prodigy is is really quite challenging.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I, um, I don't think I'd ever describe myself as a prodigy, but um, yeah, it does definitely put a, a different kind of weight on the things you do and the choices you make. I think the first difficulty I had even with that concept was where I was gonna go to college. Um, and I thought, you know, I really needed to go to somewhere that really did international relations and was really well known for it. You know, I should probably be at Georgetown or somewhere. <laughs> um, and, you know, it ended up, I I went to my state land grant university, which I didn't necessarily know at the time, but had one of the strongest African studies programs in the country. So hmm. it worked out pretty well.
0: Mm, um, that's good.
1: And I think it's... Uh, maybe more so about that kind of access to opportunity. And I think that's true, no matter you know whether we're talking about someone living in an impoverished neighborhood or <laughs> uh, a so-called prodigy, the access to opportunity and what you're able to do with it is really, really significant in where you end up.
0: Are you interested in making more opportunities for other people then so that they can have these opportunities to grow and, and excel as you've had?
1: yeah absolutely i think that's um that was part of what i came to terms with as well i i had been in the you know the limelight for a long enough period of time or because <laughs> after the after the teen people thing i was on the back of a doritos bag um which got really weird uh
0: do you still have a doritos bag oh with your face gosh. on it
1: yes uh <laughs> opened or full... unopened There's also a full bag, um, which you should never open a Doritos bag that you save for probably more than five years because it's just rancid. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I think, you know, uh, coming to terms with having all the kind of attention focused on you and being able to let it go, has been really helpful to, to be able to focus on, you know, how do we build structures to give other people opportunity?
0: I hadn't uncovered in my research that you were ever on a bag of Doritos. That's so fantastic.
1: Yeah, my uh, my family really enjoyed going to, whenever they went to the supermarket. There was one point where, uh, I think it was my sister held it up to a guy. and was like, this is my brother. And he was like, oh, I really hope you find him. Um, as if it was like a missing persons on the milk carton thing. Yes.
0: <laughs> wow, that is so fantastic. I really yeah. hope you find him. Yeah. <laughs> Were there any other teens who will change the world that stand out to you from that time?
1: That's a great question. Well, so I remember the guy that I was photographed with for the magazine uh, and he did wildlife photography. And then I, the only other one I remember is a guy who had researched the water in airplanes. Whenever he tells his story that probably, you know, everyone who's ever flown in a plane is probably just freaking out inside. <laughs>
0: It's so funny you mention him because um, my last guest mentioned him and oh. <laughs> she met him at the photo shoot in Los Angeles. Okay. And to this day, she tells people don't drink the water on airplanes because of how like vividly it stuck in her mind, what, what yeah. he told her about his
1: research. Right. I even remember that they um, he would say they would refill the water bottle from the airplane tank. So I would even tell people, unless you see them crack that water bottle open, don't, right. don't do it.
0: I think his work actually changed FAA policy. Oh, so you might be safe next time you fly. Oh, I'm intrigued now that multiple people have mentioned him to me. So he right. was obviously top of mind for some people
1: for his, right. his well, research. A powerful story and really, you know, useful research.
0: Do you have a copy of the, of the Teen People issue that you were in?
1: I do, yes. Yeah. Um, When did you last look at it? My mother bought like hundreds.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And there was quite a lot of media attention at the time. I've found this with a number of other kids who were in 20 teens who will change the world, which is the feature that you were honored in, um, that there was a lot of media attention. There was CNN, there was NBC, there were newspapers across the country and also local uh, regional newspapers what was that like at that time to sort of have this sudden celebrity for your work?
1: Yeah, um, that it was big. And I I think, um, well, uh, for my project, it had kind of been ongoing. And so I was in a, a weird place where I had almost become kind of a local well-known name in the local paper. It was just kind of the next, the next level up <laughs> um, for my work. Um, and I think for me, it was, you know, always thinking what was gonna be the next thing that was gonna launch this to get bigger or help more people when that's not necessarily true. Do you um, still
0: think that way in your work? Always thinking about the next thing?
1: Um, yeah, I think absolutely. That's uh, I always have a lot of projects going on.
0: <laughs> that's good, it's good to be busy. So, it seems yeah. like you have a lot of projects going on.
1: Right, um, as well as two little kids. We started the pandemic uh, with the one-year-old who's now a two-year-old. <laughs> and then we had a second child during the pandemic, which, um, you know, brought its own degree of stress.
0: <laughs> I like the little red wagon behind you. Oh, yes. The radio flyer.
1: Occasionally the the toddler comes up and sits with me.
0: <laughs> Aw, that's classic. <laughs> uh, what yeah. advice would you give your teenage self today? You described him as being quite naive.
1: <laughs> I think if I if I could have told myself to, I guess, think more critically. (laughs) Uh, That would have been good advice. I eventually got there uh, in in thinking critically about how and why things happen in the world. But um, I think that's definitely something that, you know, in our current, our current time point, where we have both kind of a pandemic situation and also mass protests against police violence and racism, hopefully more of that kind of structural and critical thinking will be something the next generation starts out with, um, as opposed to having to learn it.
0: Well, again, thanks. This was really great. I'm so glad you reached out to me last week and that we were finally able to get together and record your memories of Team people and, yeah. and catch up and see how you're doing now. So thank you.
1: Yeah, thanks so much. It's a really interesting project.
0: Speaking of really interesting projects, Alex is the author of a book called Detroit in 50 Maps, which the New York Times Book Review described as an offbeat, fascinating, decidedly lo-fi atlas offering a lively cultural snapshot of the Motor City. You can find Alex's book through his publisher, Belt Publishing. The link is in the notes for this episode. Or ask your local bookstore or library to order it for you if you liked this episode, please leave a review on your favorite podcast app and tell all your friends. I'll be back next week with another episode of Teen People Podcast. Until next time, I'm Anna Soper. Stay well.